invite you to turn in your Forms and Prayers books. We're going to be looking at one question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. So Lord's Day 45, question answer 116 on page 252. 252 in the Forms and Prayers book. All right. From our catechism then, question answer 116. Why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. And also because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask God for these gifts and thank him for them. As for the reading of our catechism. Before we open this and we open God's word together, let's pray and ask his blessing upon this time. Can you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these words of our catechism, a faithful summary and representation of what your word has for us, we pray that your spirit would um, illumine our hearts and our minds. That, Lord, we would be moved and shaped by this word, that Heavenly Father, as a common confession that we have, that we would take these things to our hearts. That, Lord, as we go into this world, we would truly be a people who are thankful for great and amazing reasons. I pray, Father, that you would bless me as I seek to lead your people through your word. Um, that, Lord, they would be blessed, and more importantly, you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this evening, we are going to look at just a fraction of this answer, from this question and answer. Uh, That first part, because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. I've chosen that because um, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and this is kind of like the end of it. Um, And we now start looking forward to the next holiday to Christmas, the Christmas season. And so I thought it would be helpful to concentrate and to think about what it means that prayer ought to be the chief part, the most important part of our thankfulness. Now I have to admit to you that when I read, I think for as long as I've been reading this catechism question and answer, That prayer is to be the chief part, the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. It has confused me. I have to think through it. What does that mean? That prayer is the chief part of our thankfulness. This place in the catechism is in the third part. Depending on how you divide it up, sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude. So we are in that last part, and the Catechism has just spent a lot of time explaining how we should apply the law, the Ten Commandments, as a rule of gratitude. And so all of that, that rule of gratitude, is subservient, is under the importance of prayer. Now, that's interesting. 
Because wouldn't you see that most of the time, if you're going to express thanks to someone, you would do it with action, something that was very active, right? We would often say that actions speak louder than our words. And so that's why I say this idea that prayer is the most important part of my thankfulness has always struck me as being a little strange. A little out of the ordinary. Just think of your own prayers. Many times when we pray, especially if we follow the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication in our prayers, and you express thanksgiving. And so you express thanksgiving to God for your job, for food, for family, for whatever it is. Does that prayer, does that mentioning of that thanksgiving, does it measure up? Is it similar? Is it in same depth to what God has blessed you with? I dare say that most of us, when we say thanks in our prayer, it is just, and we're done. Not a lot of thought to it. So my goal then for us this evening is to answer this question. How can my prayers become the most important part of my thankfulness to God? How can that change? How can I change? What needs to change so that this catechism answer is true for me and maybe true for you? Before we begin or go any further, we need to think about what is prayer in the first point. What is prayer? If you were to, right, so let's say you and your family, you went out for dinner and you held hands around the table and you prayed and someone came up to you and said, what in the world were you just doing? How would you explain to them what prayer is? That may be a, a different answer than what you might give, but what is prayer? Prayer really is at its most foundational, most important aspect is, has to do with our attitude. It has to do not so much with the words we say, whether out loud or in our heart, but it has to do with our attitude. That as we go to God in prayer, we are expressing in that very action a dependence upon Him. That the thing that I am asking for, thanking Him for, bringing up to His attention, I am doing so because I depend upon Him with, for, and around whatever that is. And so prayer, the very act of that prayer, is a confession that I am helpless. And so when we thank God for our daily bread, we thank God for the meal we are about to eat, or we have just eaten, we are saying if we have the proper attitude and the attitude that we need to grow in with regard to prayer, is I am helpless in providing this for myself, and I thank you for providing it for me. I think in theory, we all would accept that, that that is right, that is good. Prayer is an acknowledgement of my need, my dependency, my helplessness, and I spread those things before the Lord, and I thank Him for them. That's the attitude that we have. But do we? Is that the attitude that is the foundation underneath our prayers as we go. This attitude of dependency then means that we must be submissive to God's divine will. 
I have just said lots of words that I'm willing to bet most of you do not like. You are utterly dependent, helpless, and you must submit. Those are things that we don't do very well. We like to think of ourselves as being self-sufficient, of being able to provide for myself, my family. We go work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. Why? Because I need to provide. And so, do we actually have a heart that expresses in prayer that I am dependent and helpless and submissive to the very will of God and accept that? That's a tough one. I suggest that that's probably a tough one for all of us. Those are tough words to swallow, but they are a good thing for us to think about. Think about this. Allegedly, this prayer was uttered some time ago when I was in youth group, just a few years ago. Bless this bunch as they munch and crunch their lunch. That was said as... I believe it was a class, was headed out to lunch break. Is that a prayer of thankfulness? I don't know. How about this one? Lord, bless this food and drink for Jesus' sake. Amen. Probably one of the first prayers that we all learned around our dinner tables. Now that's fine for a two or three-year-old, right? As they're learning to pray and learning to express themselves. Is that appropriate for a 30-year-old, 40-year-old, 80-year-old? If we were to look at our prayers and how we pray them and the attitude of our heart and the words that we use and the thoughts that are going through our minds, I wonder if we're not much more than that three-year-old prayer, Lord, bless us food and drink, for Jesus' sake, amen. Our, our, pattern, our petitions of gratitude still so general, with little, if not zero, forethought into who God is and what He has done as we go to Him in prayer. Does the idea of our dependency and our helplessness and our submission to Him, is it really underneath the reason and the why of our prayers? Not again that we have to rehearse some deep theological truths that we all have to get out our theology books or our, our Belgic Confession or our, our Louis Burkhoff and, and read a section of, 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 of theology and then work through that theology in our mind and then pray. No, we can have very simple prayers. Nehemiah, as he went into the king, asked for God's help on the fly. But he did so because he was dependent and he was helpless and he was willing to submit himself to the God of creation. So that's where we need to go. Do we ever slow down to think deeply about what we're going to pray about and what it means to enter before the face of God in prayer? Not just to say, Lord, thank you for this food and drink, amen. So, how do I grow so that my prayers are the chief part of my thankfulness? I didn't quite know how to word this, so I'm going to call these three motivations. 
But they could be three reasons, three motivations, three um, ideas, three purposes of why this ought to be true for us and why this should be easy for us over time. Grow in these things so that this foundation is there, so that my prayer is my chief way of sowing, showing thanksgiving. So what we're going to do, going to do, we're going to look at three different passages. We're going to very briefly mine those passages for one or two golden nuggets, and then we're going to pray. So we're going to, we're going to take every one of these passages, we're going to look at it, and then we're going to pray it. Okay? So, the first motivation, the first reason, the first thing that we should have before us as we make work towards a prayer that is filled with gratitude is to experience and think about God's life-changing mercy given to His people. So to look at that, we're going to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. So if you have a Bible there in front of you, I invite you to turn in them to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Now again, we're going to be looking at this passage to see God's life-changing mercy that every believer has experienced. Every believer has experienced this. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 through 10 are my favorite verses in the Bible. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 4, but we're going to read 1 through 5. So Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Life-changing mercy. Were you catching all those descriptors? There's a lot going on in this passage. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. In fact, all these passages that we're going to look at, you could write books on. But look how we're described. Dead in our sins. Following the world. Prince, following the prince of the power of the air. Children, that's another way of saying we're following Satan. Sons of disobedience. Living in the passions of our flesh and the desires of our body. In fact, we are in such a state, we are by nature children of wrath. Three verses that if you really are going to take them to heart and really think about what they say, should be slapping you upside the face. Upside the heart. Because that's who we are apart from Christ. Dead. Think of how amazing it was when Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb and he said, Lazarus came out. And he did. That doesn't happen. Dead men, dead women, dead boys and girls don't live. But because of God, we do. 
Our natural spiritual state is to be dead in following after the devil himself. Doing everything we can contrary to his will. That's our natural state. That's where our hearts naturally want to go. And, and you know that from your own experience because even now, still in your life, there are times when that natural state comes back out. It comes out and we decide instead to follow the prince of the power of the air instead of the prince of peace. We make that decision. And we throw a fit when we're 2, 3, 18, 55, 85. When we choose to be sons and daughters of disobedience instead of following after the will of our God. That is who we are. Following the passions and the desires, fits, pouting, jealousy, coveting, gossip, bad attitudes, all these things, we've all experienced them as they come out of our heart. We know that's where we naturally want to go. But look how verse 4 starts. But God, being rich in mercy. Here we are, dead men walking, But God, in His rich mercy, comes and breathes new life. That's why I called this section life-changing mercy. We're against Him. We would fight against Him. We would shake our fists and spit in His face if He would stand before us. But God, who is rich in mercy, changes all of that. And you are no longer a son who follows after Satan. But by God's grace and His mercy... You are a son or daughter of the King, bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and forever His child. That is life-giving mercy. I suggest to you that that's one of those foundations we need to think about, that as we go before our God in prayer, this is what He has done. This is how He has accomplished His will in our lives. By His Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And that's what he shows us. So let's pray it. Let's pray it back to him. Our loving Father, when we think about the natural state of our hearts, when we think of what You sacrificed, the mercy that You showed to us, Lord, we can't comprehend it. Lord, for most of us, we have grown up in covenant homes. For most of us, we do not remember a day where we did not hear Jesus Christ proclaimed. We did not um, learn the stories that are in the Bible. We did not know these things. But Heavenly Father, It is so easy for us to be contrary and even at war with you sometimes. We, because we've lived in this covenant home, we don't see ourselves in our natural state. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that when we meditate on your word in this way, we would remember 
that because of your mercy, we are no longer lost to our natural father, the devil. That because of your mercy, we no longer um, are compelled by our desires and our passions to follow the world. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about your mercy and how it changes us, that we would welcome being helpless and dependent upon you because your mercy is so great. Because you have not given us what we deserve, but you have given us so much more. You have given us yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The next motivation or reason why prayer ought to become and be the chief part of my thankfulness is we experience God's life-sustaining grace. Life-sustaining grace. For that, we're going to look at Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, we're going to read verses 7 and 8. This is a fabulous passage filled with bright and glorious metaphors. Which, again, I, like I said, you could write books about this passage. But we're only going to look at it briefly. So Jeremiah 17, beginning at verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not, and is not anxious in the year of drought. For it does not cease to bear fruit. One of the most important words in these two verses is that word heat. Heat. Here that word heat is a metaphor, is a reason, is a word picture for us to understand life happens. And life is not easy. It is heat. Just like the people of Israel as they wandered through the desert, what was their greatest enemy? It was heat. And so it is for God's people. It is the heat of life. That as suffering comes, as challenges come, as decisions come our way, we don't know which way to go. That heat makes us choose. We have to choose which direction that we will go. And actually this passage, verses 7 and 8, is a contrast of verses 5 and 6, where we see where those choices, if we choose not to go in God's way, what happens. But when we choose to go the wrong way from heat, we see that we experience fear, right? It's the opposite here because it's saying everything in the positive. Does not fear heat when fear, when, does not fear the heat when it comes. Why? We're going to get to that in a minute. Does not fear the drought that comes. Why? Because this man trusts in the Lord. Because he has experienced and given life-sustaining grace. Here there's the picture of this tree being planted by this living water. The idea then is this tree is by itself would dry up and be nothing. It would wither away and die. But because it has been planted by the stream of living water, it is dependent on it and it is helpless without it 
And so this is a fabulous picture for you and me as we see where and who we have to depend upon. And so when we trust God, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, what can you expect? Whereas there's the picture of this tree being green, right? At the end of verse 8. For its leaves remain green. Green leaves mean abundant life. But it goes on, doesn't it? He is not anxious in the year of drought. Think about the last time you experienced heat, the heat of life, or maybe a neighbor or a coworker. As you experienced that heat, did you trust in the Lord? Did you not trust in the Lord? And what happened? If you didn't trust in the Lord, there was probably a great deal of anxiety that came with that. Maybe your neighbor, your coworker, as they're making a decision about this or other thing and they're not a believer, so they go this way. And it's just heat after heat after heat. And they grow more and more anxious about life. Trusting in the Lord means we do not have to be concerned for these things. And look what else it says. Don't def- be anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Not only is this tree, not only are you the one who trusts in the Lord, maintaining but your life is so filled with God's sustaining grace that you bear good fruit that is amazing grace as we think about the heat that each one of you is experiencing maybe even now or can think about it because we are a tree planted by living water have you ever been to the desert my family and I we took a trip to Utah and saw a bunch of the national parks that are there. We flew into Las Vegas. If you've never been to Las Vegas, this won't make much of a difference for you, but as you drive out of Las Vegas, you get a little picture of what Israel faced as they crossed the desert. It is the most dead place I have ever seen in my life. There is nothing but sand, dirt, and rock. I don't see how anything could ever live there. Why? Because there's no water. The last national park we went to was Zion National Park. As you walked along the the river that runs on the middle of that canyon, you would swear it was the most beautiful place you'd ever seen. It is so filled with life. It is an amazing contrast from everything that's around it. Why? Because of living water. Listen what John says in the New Testament. John 7. Whoever, this is Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so that's what we have in Jesus Christ. We have this sustaining grace, life sustaining grace as life giving water every day so that we can face the heat that is always around us. This life sustaining grace because God gives us better than what we deserve. Himself. Every day. Let's take this passage and pray it back to our Lord. Thank you, Jesus. For you did not consider the glories of heaven something to be held on to. But you came to this earth and you have given us yourself as a life-giving stream.
Lord, as those who have been translated, transported, transplanted from following the world to following You, we are so thankful for what You have given to us. We confess, O Lord, that sometimes our trust is not in You. That we sometimes are anxious because we lose track and our eyes waver from who You are and what You have done. Sometimes we grow with great fear because of drought. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be reminded once again of what You have given to us, Your life-sustaining grace, so that, Lord, our prayers, our thoughts would always be filled with thanksgiving as we are dependent upon You. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take this to heart. This would be our anthem. And Lord, that through Your life-sustaining grace, we would bear good fruit so that others could be won by that same grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final, our final foundation is we have been given a life-giving hope. Jeremiah 29.11 Just one verse. Just a few pages away. Jeremiah 29 11. Jeremiah 29.11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Another passage just packed full of amazing thoughts. Amazing truths. When we're young, we don't understand the importance of plans. But, children, maybe you get to help mom make Christmas cookies in these coming couple of weeks. And so you're going to get all those ingredients. Maybe you've got some flour and some eggs and some chocolate and some sugar and all these different things. Now, what would happen if you had your mixer there on the counter and you just kind of willy-nilly threw them into that mixing bowl and turned it on full blast? What would happen? Those would not be good cookies. Why? Because you didn't follow the plan. The recipe is the plan. And so maybe the next time after you scrape that bowl of whatever into the trash, you start over. And mom says, okay, we're going to measure the flour. We're going to measure how much water. We're going to measure. We're going to put it all in at a certain time and at a certain temperature in a certain way. And because we followed the plan, we have awesome cookies. Plans are important. But as a child, when we're making cookies, we don't know what we're doing wrong. We're just doing. And so we need someone else to come along with us that knows how this works and lead us through it. Maybe you're a college student. You decided to go to college and you want to get a business degree. And so you go to college and you see all these great classes and you just start signing up. Ooh, that one would be fun. That's uh, performing arts. And well, this looks like a reading class. And hey, that, what is this computer programming stuff? I'm going to take one of those. And there's underwater basket weaving. That sounds like a lot of fun. And every semester, you just took whatever you willy-nilly you wanted to take. Would you ever graduate? Anybody that's been to college knows you're going to not graduate for a long time. Why? Because you don't have a plan. 
You need your advisor to come along and say, well, you know, underwater basket weaving is fun, but it doesn't earn you a, a bachelor's of business. So let's do it this way. And so this person who's wiser and more experienced comes along and helps you follow the plan because you don't know what to do. That's the awesome part about this, pa- this passage. For God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, he comes to you and says, I know the plans I have for you. Do you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Do you know what's going to happen after church as you go home? Not one of us knows. Not one of us can control anything. But God says, I know the plans I have for you. And so what does that mean? That we can move forward in that trust, in that love, in that hope. Because he knows what's going to happen next. Thinking back to the passage before, he knows the heat that we are going to endure. And so he prepares us. He shows us the way through the heat. He is the one who knows the plans that I have for you. Plans for welfare. Now maybe when you hear the word welfare, maybe you're like, oh, I don't like welfare. Welfare is a bad word in our conservative political circles. But this word is actually the word in Hebrew, shalom. Well, that's a Hebrew word that's often in our English language. Shalom means peace, prosperity, success. So now read the passage with that. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for shalom. That sounds a lot better. For peace and prosperity. Good things. Right? That's God's plans for you. Not like, well, if you work hard and you really try and you keep your nose clean, you might have something good. No, he says, the plans I have for you are welfare and not for evil. They are peace. They are prosperity. And so he says that his plans are to give you a future and a hope. A future and a hope. As parents, as we raise our children, that's what we look forward to as we, as we train them up in the fear of the Lord, as we teach them to work, as we teach them to study, as we teach them to, to work with other people and go through these different things. We're trying to help them secure a future. But God says to give you a future. Not one that you have to earn. But He gives it to you. What happens if you know if your future is secure? If you know tomorrow and the next day and the next day until eternity what's going to happen and what good things are going to happen and what bad things are going to be happening and so on and so forth, what does that do then for today for the way that you can live? It's the next word. You can live with hope. Because you know that right now, the heat of now, the heat of tomorrow, the heat of the next day, that's not the end of the story. Because God has promised to give you a life-giving hope that is with shalom, peace, prosperity, and success. Now that may not mean that you're a millionaire by the time you're 25. It may not mean that you live in a lap of luxury or that every plan and every decision you make goes swimmingly smooth and your children turn out perfect and your business is profitable and whatever else you may 
define as peace, prosperity, and success. Maybe other things. God has, may have greater and better things for you than those things. But nonetheless, he promises them. Look what 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4, just listen to what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Brothers and sisters, that is a life-giving hope. And that's what he says to you. That's what he gives to me. That is yours in Christ. And it is a reason why our prayers can be the chief part of our thankfulness. Because these things are true. Now maybe you're thinking, how then do I put this into practice? How can I do this? Well, a suggestion to learn is when you do devotions every morning, when you read that Bible passage, when you read that devotional, I hope that's based on some Bible passage. Pray those words back to God. Think about what that's saying and pray about that to the Lord specifically. The Psalms worked great for this. You know, it's Thanksgiving, so there's, we could go to Psalm 100, Psalm 107, the beginning of Psalm 103. They're all about Thanksgiving. The songs of ascent in the Psalms are great songs that we can pray to the Lord as we think about these things. His mercy, His grace, and the hope that He gives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. With that then, let's now close by praying Jeremiah 29.11 back to the Lord. Blessed Holy Spirit, we are a people that so desperately need Your comfort. Lord, there are so many distractions around us. There are so many easy ways for us to to place our hope, place our trust in something else. And so, Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, we pray that You would humble us, help us to become more and more dependent upon You, to realize the finitude of who we are as people, that we truly are helpless without You. Impress upon us, Father, anew, maybe even every day we might say, and these good plans that lead to a future and a hope that you have for us, and to trust them and live in them, and let them fuel our prayers. Lord, what an awesome thing it is to think about, that we have this hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can join with your people who have sang for generations, the Lord will keep you from all evil, he will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And so, Lord, we pray that these things and so many more would help us to make the most important part of our thankfulness our prayers to you every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.